It's good to see you this morning. Uh, we've got a great crowd over at the multi-purpose room, so it's a great day in the life of our church family. We've been talking together about why the resurrection. Last year, we talked about why the death of Christ, and we, we had six or seven sessions and times together to talk about that, and we could talk about that for all eternity. But, but for these weeks together, then why the resurrection? Why did the bodily resurrection of Christ have to, have to happen? So last week, we started with the promise of the resurrection. We looked at verse 3 and 4 and said that not only did Jesus die according to the Scriptures, but this reminder, too, that Jesus was raised according to the Scriptures. So whatever the Father has promised, whatever he has shown in his word is to be true and will be true, but also that Jesus is a person of his word. He had prophesied at least three times that he would raise up that temple. So today, we're not looking at the promise of the resurrection, but the proof of the resurrection. And we're going to look at those middle sections of 1 Corinthians 15, so I encourage you to keep your Bible open there. Paul is building a case for how you and I can know that the resurrection was true, that it was reasonable. Many apologists today uh, talk about the resurrection, that it cannot be explained away. One of them is Josh McDowell. Maybe you've read his book, Evidence That Demands a Verdict. Josh McDowell was a skeptic. He spent 700 hours alone just studying the resurrection account. And here's what he said. After that study, it is the most vicious, destructive, vile moment in all of human history. Or it is the most fantastic fact of human history. And that's where he landed. The resurrection of Christ. H.P. Lydon says, Faith in the resurrection is the very keystone of the ark of Christian faith. And when it is removed, all must inevitably crumble into ruin. And you're going to bump into, I think it's worthy of us taking on this topic, you're going to bump into modern scholarship that says, you know what, there was no need for a resurrection. Because Jesus never died. They took him off the cross. He had swooned there. They took him off the cross, and uh, he just kind of woke up later. Now, we talked about that last time. Jesus died. Matter of fact, Muslims, partly, I think, because they can't explain away resurrection, say Jesus never died as well. So, resurrection is so philosophically, biblically, uh, historically reasonable that there's, you're going to bump into some who say that can't have happened. One of those was Anthony Flew. Many of you may be uh, very uh, well acquainted with his thoughts. He was at one time the most celebrated atheist of the 20th century. But at age 70, because of the intelligent design uh, accounts, he became a theist. He believed in a creator God. And he struggled with resurrection. Matter of fact, I don't know that he ever got there. I think he died in his 80s. I don't know if he ever got there, but what Anthony Flew ended up saying was, There is one thing I cannot explain away, and it's the resurrection of Jesus Christ. He had to be intellectually honest and say, I can't explain it away. Is the resurrection true? Is it reasonable? Well, Paul is going to build an argument in 1 Corinthians 15 and verses really uh, 5 and on uh, down to 9. He's going to build an account of here's how I'm going to prove to you or at least show to you the reliability of what's happened. And he does that by eyewitness accounts. 
The first eyewitness account, if you have your Bibles open or your iPhone open or your uh, smartphone open, verse 5, he says, the disciples saw him. Well, wait a minute. Who are these disciples? And why should that add to our belief in the resurrection? Well, these disciples, do you remember what they were doing when Jesus had died? They were all scared. They were all huddled together. Uh, Also, we remember what the disciples looked like throughout their lives before the death of Christ. They were backbiting. They were picking on each other. They were trying to one-up each other. Another proof of the resurrection we'll finish today is the life change that happens in these disciples after they had met Jesus. There's going to be some scholarship you'll bump into say, well, those guys just put together this hoax. Well, not only is there not enough time to put together a hoax because the Gospels are written before everybody's dead and you could question uh, what had happened and, and, and try to disprove it away. But I love what Chuck Colson says about this. Some of you may remember Chuck Colson. He served with President Nixon. And he was part of the Watergate scandal and went to prison for it. And while he was in prison, became a believer, rededicated his life to Christ and worked in prison reform for the rest of his life. They were asking him about resurrection, the validity of that, the reasonability, you know, is it reasonable? And he says, I'll give you a one-word answer. Watergate. Watergate. If these stumbling, bumbling, paranoid, scared out of their minds, infighting group of disciples, if those 11 could hold it together, you know how long we held it together at Watergate before John Dean turned on the president? You had these people who were fiercely loyal to President Nixon, and that loyalty lasted all of two weeks before they started to crack. And Chuck Colson says, we were just going to be politically embarrassed Maybe a few of us would do prison time, and they did. These disciples' lives were on the line. And until their deaths, and, and, and 11 of the 12, Matthias, when you add him in, in later, 11 of the 12 disciples die a martyr's death. You don't die, Chuck Colson says, for something that you know is not true. They died because they had met Christ. Paul enlists their testimony to remind us again that these disciples saw, look at their lives, look at their faith, look at how they have changed. But then we drop down to verses 6 and 7. And again, here's this reminder, Jesus appeared to more than 500. Sometimes we forget about that. We read the Gospels and we just think it's a handful. In this account, Paul reminds, hey, there was that day where he showed up to over 500 people. Now listen, the Gospels are written probably in the 60s, not John, but the other three Gospels. This letter's probably written around 55, 56 AD. You know what that means for the other 500 that Paul reports here? Most of them are still alive. A few have fallen asleep, or a few have gone to be with Jesus. If you have a problem with me, go ask one of the 384 people who are still left alive, and they'll tell you they were there, and they saw Jesus bodily uh, resurrected. And then I think this is helpful too. He didn't just appear to the 500, but he appeared to James. Now, who is James? Half-brother of Jesus. Now listen, that's a risk, because what do we know about James at this point? He doesn't believe. And so that's a risk for Christ to say, I'm going to entrust that here where he could go and turn and turn in the disciples and do, you know, just to show up to him. They could have, thinking of risk, I think of, you know, every, everybody gives me the pearly gate jokes. That's what I get as a preacher. People will share with me the pearly gate jokes. And I don't know why, but every one of those jokes has Peter there at the pearly gate receiving people in. And what's the question he always asks? 
Why should I let you in? So this one man comes up to the pearly gates and he gets there and Peter says, why should we let you in? And the guy says, I thought this, I thought this heaven thing, I thought this Jesus thing was about grace. That it's my, my entry is unmerited. I've just accepted Jesus and what he's done for me. Peter says, that's right, but I'm required to ask the question. Why should we let you in? So the guy starts thinking about his life and he says, well, maybe, maybe it's because I was good to my parents. Uh, maybe because I was fair in all my business dealings. Oh, tell you what, there was one time where I risked my life for a woman. She was about to be attacked by a gang and I stepped in and risked my life for her. And Peter says, that's fantastic. When did that happen? Oh, about 30 seconds ago. Risk. And Jesus risks and shows up to who was at that time an enemy of the gospel, an enemy of Christ. And James, as you know, in Acts 15, becomes a leader in the Jerusalem council. His ministry kind of holds the church together. And Jesus doesn't just appear to him as an unbeliever, uh, but he appears also to the apostles, that larger group of 70 or even more. Paul's building his apologetic, his defense for the faith on eyewitness testimony. They saw, and not only did they see, look at their lives after. But just for a few minutes, I want us to look at some other defenses for the resurrection. I'd encourage you to go to Josh McDowell, Paul E. Little, uh, Lee Strobel, C.S. Lewis, Williams Lane Craig. They've got great books about how it is. If you're, if you're trying to share your faith and, and how reasonable our faith is, uh, you can share that by using these resources. Now, I love how Paul's going to close, but these are good helps too. When we look at the history of the resurrection, there's no way to explain resurrection that Jesus got out of the tomb unless he was raised. There's no argument that keeps Jesus Christ in the grave. When we had the, the ice a couple of weeks ago, I started thinking about how I grew up in Pennsylvania, how we would get the ice or snow and get to sled all the time. And I thought about the Methodist church. I had never been to the Methodist church as a kid. I grew up Lutheran. My dad's side of the family was Lutheran. But five houses down from me was the United Methodist Church. You know when I went to the Methodist church? When it was time to sled. Because they had this incredible hill. Now, sometimes we'd sled on the street that was right by that hill, but there were cars there. I had friends I actually go under cars sledding. That wasn't good. And so a lot of times we just go to this hill. And I thought, the way I remembered it, it was 80-degree angle straight down for two miles. That's how I remembered it. I finally got to go worship there about four years ago with Sarah. We went up and visited and worshiped there. It's not exactly 80 degrees. more like 78 degrees, 77 uh, and then at the end of this huge hill, there's a little bit of a straightaway, and then there's what you would call a creek. Anybody up north, what would you call a creek? Crick, that's right. So there was a crick at the end of it. And I remember one, one time as, a, as, as children sledding there, and this, this one kid had gotten a brand new sled. And he was bragging, even before we started, hey, I got a new sled. I'm going to make it all the way to the crick. Now, not many people have made it all the way to the crick, but he was saying to us, I'm going to make it. First time he went down, he got almost there. So he came back, and he was getting a running start, and he yelled to us, I'm making it to the crick. He did, and the crick was frozen. And so when he got to the edge, he hit the edge, lost his sled there, and went up in the air and did a nosedive into the, into the crick, broke the ice, and the only thing you saw flipping out of the very top were his little boots, his winter boots. And if it hadn't been for the Eggly boys pulling him out, 
He'd have lost his life there. He was, he was in a place where he could not get out of. There's no way to get Jesus out of the tomb except for resurrection. And so we just want to walk through a couple of these. If you're a note taker, you can write down a few uh, uh, key words that remind us of that. First is the tomb itself. Now people will even argue, and it's interesting. People will argue, well, when the, when, when the women went that first day and then the disciples later, they went to the wrong tomb. They went to the wrong tomb, and that's why they found it empty. Well, first off, who went first, women or men? Women. So they would have stopped and asked for directions. So they got the wrong tomb. If it had been men, I could believe that. But you wouldn't have gone to the wrong tomb because biblically we know what the record says. This was a new tomb. There aren't many of those. This is a tomb near where Jesus was crucified. There wouldn't have been many of those. This is also a tomb with what was considered a vile criminal in it. And it would have been highly politicized and everybody would have known. Even, even some wild scholarship to, today says, well, they, they just dumped his body in the garbage dump there in Gehenna Valley. They just threw his body in Gehenna Valley. Oh, and then they rolled a stone in front of that and they sealed it. If you do that, you throw out the whole biblical record. So they did not go to the wrong tomb. We're reminded of that here. But also, once you get in the tomb, you've got those grave clothes that really scream of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Because you're going to bump into some scholarship that says, well, we know the Jews wouldn't take him, his body, because they wanted him dead. And the Romans were so paranoid to have another Messiah in their hands, they wouldn't have taken the body. That's why they stationed people there. So it, it had to be grave robbers who came and took the body. Now, there's a couple of things about that that's a problem. Number one, what was the most expensive thing Jesus ever wore? It's gone. Psalm 22 says they gambled for my clothes. They cast lots for my clothes. That was gone pre-crucifixion. They, let's don't tear it. Let's gamble and cast lots for it. So there's nothing to get there. And whatever they get there is just going to be covered in, in blood. And then when you finally get the John account of the resurrection, when they get there, what do you notice? And I think it's partly why Peter and John believe. They run to the grave, and there it is. And it says right then they believe. You've got grave clothes that are folded. You've got the body wrap, and then you've got the head linen. Maybe, just maybe, we have the world's first ever very tidy grave robber. <laughs> I'm going to fold this up. I feel bad about what I'm stealing, so I'm going to fold this up, and I'm going to fold. You would, you would at least take that. You wouldn't take the body. You can't get anything for it. But that's, that's, what, you, that's what you bump into, is I've got to explain away resurrection, so I'll just say the grave robbers took it. It made no sense because also this is a new tomb. There's nothing left to steal but a criminal's body. It makes no sense. One of the great reasons we believe, too, is because of the Roman seal and the soldiers. Pilate was so paranoid. There had been other people claiming to be Messiah at this time. They had read the scriptures. They knew it was time for, for God to share the Messiah with the world. And so other people had raised up and they had been killed. Pilate's so paranoid he won't listen to what his wife said. And on top of that, not soon after this, he's removed because there's another uprising and he gets sent away. So he's going to make sure that if Jesus has died, yes, there will be soldiers stationed there. But it's not just them. You know those judgmental Pharisees? 
up in the temple, which is just a stone's throw away from where we believe the tomb to be. Remember, it was, it was nearby where Jesus was crucified. You've got the temple guard, and I think that's 240 Levites and 30 priests on duty at all time. And they're always watching people trying to bust them for something. Nobody can have any fun. Everybody's got to keep the law. How do you get past 270 people plus those guards if you're just a few people, a few followers, whether it's the disciples or the women. There are 18 reasons why a soldier uh, could be killed because they had not fulfilled their duty. Two of them had to do with problems on the night watch or abandoning your post. None of these people, as we look at historical records, were ever brought up on, hey, you didn't, you let them come and steal the body, and so we're going to uh, kill you. That never happens. Why? Because Jesus got out. You can't explain it away. And there's even a record in Scripture that says, well, he, they came and got him while we were asleep. Oh, well, then how do you know? Because you were asleep. I love what the husband of my former music minister in my first church that I pastored said. He, she uh, woke him up one night, just gave him a hard elbow because she had had a dream where he had done some really bad things and said some bad things to her. And so she elbowed him and said, Bob, get up. I can't believe what you did. I can't believe what you said. And Bob looked at Brenda and said, Honey, I'll barely take responsibility for what I do during your waking hours. You can forget me being accountable for what I do while you're asleep. Well, they came and took him while we were asleep. It's just not reasonable. And I want you to be very careful as we hear this. Who's the first per people that encounter the empty tomb? You remember? It's the women. Now, if you're going to in that culture and day and time, so be careful how you hear that. If you're going to build your case, they've got 20, 30 years to clean this up if this is a fraud. If this is fake, you clean that part up, and the first person to see that is Peter the Rock. You let him see that. No. He's, he's back in a room cowering and scared for his life. If you're going to have a testimony in a court in that day and culture, wasn't right, but in that day and culture, a man's testimony had to accompany a woman's testimony. You don't start there. Why would you start there? Because that's what happened. It was their faithfulness to go to the tomb. And guess what? They never went again. In that day and culture, you always venerated a tomb. You went by and cared for the body for days and for days and for days. And then you'd collect the bones and put them uh, in an ossuary or in a, in a container. Matter of fact, I was in Jerusalem one time with Bill Urey. And we went to a little room. And there were the cigar-like uh, entrances into the wall little holes in the wall where you could put bodies where they would come and venerate it for days nobody venerated that tomb you know why because he wasn't there it stopped now if you're a good mom if you're a good follower you'd go the next day nobody went on monday because they knew he was alive by the way that room was in the church of the holy sepulcher in jerusalem you know what they call that room that i was in the tomb of joseph of arimathea maybe it's the room you know what i don't care you know why because jesus wasn't there I'm not going to glorify the tomb. I'm going to glorify the resurrected Savior. And there's no reason to keep him there. There's nothing biblically, uh, not just biblically, but politically, philosophically, historically, in historical documents, or even uh, practically that keeps him there. Even, even his enemies are mostly silent about it. I like what John Stott says. Their silence is as eloquent a proof of the resurrection as the apostles' witness. And when they do speak up, whether it's Jewish historians or Roman historians like Josephus who says, Jesus appeared to them alive on the third day. 
I mean, we have that written down by somebody not a Christian. So you've got historical record of people saying things like that. But here's the key witness. And this is for us to remember. There are so many reasons why we ought to be encouraged, and everything's by faith, but we ought to be encouraged that we can know that Jesus is alive by those arguments. What does Paul say? How does he end this argument uh, when we get down to verse 8? Me. He appeared to me. Do you know who I am? I'm a persecutor of the church. I am the lowest of the low. And Jesus, the resurrected Christ, came to, to me. He's building his case. And this means so much to our current culture. Argumentation matters that our faith is reasonable. That's why we rehearsed all that. But the biggest thing is, have you met him? Do you know Jesus? He touched me, and I'll, know, I'll never be the same again, right? Isn't that what the, the hymn says? When, when people know that you know him, when people see that your life was one way, but then you met Jesus, and your life is different. Look at Paul's life. A persecutor of the church, he meets Jesus. I don't care if you throw rocks at me. I don't care if I'm shipwrecked. I don't care if you threaten me with death. I will never give up. Why? Because I've met the resurrected Christ. That's the key apologetic. That's what people and our neighbors and our business associates and our friends and our relatives, that's the proof of the resurrection. It's a changed life. And that's how, that's how Paul's building his argument here. You know, the, the 11 saw, the disciple, actually says the 12 saw, so it's this, uh, Matthias must have already been included at this point. The 12, the 500, you can go ask one of them. Even his brother, and you know he didn't believe, and look at his life change. But even to me, someone as vile as me, Jesus came to me, and I am no longer the same. What's your testimony? That's a great testimony. This is who I was. But I have met the Christ. And when our attitudes change, when our words change, when our hearts change, when our lives change, that's hard to argue with. You might argue about where did they put Jesus. You might argue about, well, did the soldiers, were they asleep or were they not? You look at a changed life, that's a great argument that Christ is alive. Let's pray about that. Father, we thank you for the word that Paul gives us today to remind us again of the great, of the great truth of the resurrection, that Christ was, was raised. Father, I pray for all of us that you would open doors for us, whether it's for these arguments to be able to show the, that our faith is reasonable. Maybe it's buying some resources and be able to share those with friends who are really struggling, that they need an answer for the hope that's within us. I, pr I pray you'd help us in that. But also, Father, we have met Jesus. We've met your Son, the resurrected Christ. And so it's our prayer that, that our hearts and our lives would be so transformed that people can't argue with who we are now. They know who we were. But to see who we are now, may that be a proof. May that be an encouragement. May that stimulate someone to seek out the Christ and his resurrecting power. Thank you for this, your word. Now bless our response to it. It is in your son's name that we pray. Amen.